last 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh, mercy! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside our two-bedroom apartment in downtown Baltimore, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen here with you as always. We got a whole heck of a lot to talk about on today's show. We are live, of course, as always on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You could be listening to us after the fact. If you are, just tune into us live next time. We go, we'll go starting to get a routine down of doing this these shows on Tuesdays now that we're stuck in our homes. Got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about some of the Orioles signings in the international free agent market. We're going to talk about Brandon Klein retiring. We're going to talk about Thomas Eshelman re-signing. A lot of moves on the fringes of the roster. But first, Brendan, we have to address our last couple podcasts because they were the all Camden Yards draft. Yeah. Fun time. Yeah. Good time. Two-part, two-parter, 18-round draft. Essentially, what we were doing, first off, if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen to it. Uh, but essentially what we were doing was drafting the best players to have ever played in an Orioles jersey at Camden Yards. And we had three teams. It was you, me, and Connor Newcomb of the Locked On Orioles podcast. And then we put it to you, the voters, to find out who would have the best team of the three of us after we had our rosters filled. And Brennan, the voters uh, spoke. It was not us. It was not us. Neither one of us. The two regular hosts of this podcast took home the victory. It was instead Connor Newcomb. The final votes, I'll read them out. With 59% of the vote, Connor's team, absolutely dominating. 808 votes between Facebook, YouTube. No, there wasn't a YouTube. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's yes. where everybody voted. Yeah. Uh, my team, solid second place. 23% of the vote, 309. And in a distant third, <laughs> Brendan's 18%, 239 total votes. Those are the results. Connor Newcomb, champion of the All Camden Yards draft. And as such, we have allowed him to join us briefly on this podcast for a victory lap, uh, victory speech. Connor, do you have anything prepared? Yeah, I just want to thank you guys for having me on um, and letting me come on and, and you know humiliate both of you um, in this draft on your own podcast. And, I, you know, I was feeling good after one day of voting. I built a giant lead on day one and I could kind of sit back. I knew my team was the best. I did not know that the people would uh, vote so heavily in my favor that it wouldn't be this close. I expected, you know, more so around 40% of the vote and not 60. Uh, but that is what I got. Um, I have to say, looking at the numbers, there's a good argument to be made that Brendan had the best team and yet he came in third. Uh, and I would and also so, make that argument. You know, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's interesting how the voting went down and um, you know, there are probably certain players that each of you took that, that cost you a lot of votes, but uh, who knows if I actually had the best team, but, but I definitely played it right with who I drafted and where the voting was done. And I'll take home that victory. All right, Connor. You're looking at your roster, reviewing your 18-round draft. It helped that you had the third overall pick, I think, because you had some back-to-back -back picks in there. I, of course, had the back-to-back -back picks, but, you know, one, the first overall pick, the sixth overall pick, there's a lot of time there. If you had to look back at your roster, do you have a, a best pick, a worst pick that you made in that draft? I'll start with worst pick. It wasn't terrible. Um, I think the one thing I look back on and, and say I would have done differently is in the eighth round, um, well, I, I had a pick to end the seventh round and I took JJ Hardy and I had the next immediate pick. Um, and I went with Jonathan scope as my second baseman. And now obviously Jonathan scope had, you know, a, a six year career with the Orioles and he put up some really good numbers. Um, but Roberto Alomar was still on the board. And I think the only reason I went with scope, well, for two reasons, one, you know, obviously more longevity as an Oriole Alomar only played three seasons and B uh, as I only half jokingly say, uh, you know, I wanted that team chemistry. I already had a bunch of recent Orioles, so I wanted to put scope in there as well. Um, but looking back on it, Alomar's three years and the peak of his time was better than scopes. And it might've made my team a little bit better. Uh, but on the flip side, uh, my best pick was 
my best pick for two reasons. One, because uh, it was nice maneuvering of me to get another good bat in my lineup. And two, because it made Paul so angry. Uh, and that would be my 16th round pick of taking Javi Lopez <sighs> as my DH. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a tough one to swallow. I think as such, I have to pick my worst pick of that draft being Mike Devereaux in like the 14th or 15th round because I left Javi Lopez on the board for Connor to scoop him up. Uh, kind of opened the door for that. I thought neither of you guys was going to take advantage of me like that. And uh, little did I know. Uh, and that's the reason Connor is appearing on this podcast as a guest and as, uh, you know, a, a person in the business, but not as a friend. Okay, not as a friend. Maybe to you, Brendan, but, but <laughs> not to me. Uh, my best pick, if I'm looking back at my draft, I mean, Mike Messina, number one, I think is a great pick. But uh, I think I, you know, I, I have to go right around that middle rounds. And I, and I think I'm going to go with Roberto Alomar because of what Connor just said. I think uh, I was shocked that he was still on the board when he was there. Um, and I think in reviewing the results of this draft, it helps to have, just in terms of the way that fans vote, I think it helps to have more names that fans know. And I think that we maybe overestimated how much fans would uh, look at how long a guy was in Baltimore. Um, I think a, a bigger name, even if he wasn't there for as long, kind of attracts attention. I think even though Almar was only there for three years, the fact that he was such a big name helps. And I think in a similar way, Connor maybe benefited with Nelson Cruz because Nelson Cruz, obviously, just the one season and very productive season, but um, obviously just the one year. Brendan, do you have any... Do you, first off, before we get to your regrets, do you have any... Uh, you know? Yeah, I think uh, my best pick was probably Mike Bordick in the okay. 10th round. I think he was great far and value. away... Yeah, great value. He was far and away the best position player available. It kind of got down to the point where Connor couldn't draft any more position players and Mike Bordick was just kind of sitting there on the board so I could wait for him a little bit I don't know if I had a worst pick I know I reached on Cal Ripken Jr. second overall because I thought the name value would bring me a little more vote uh, than it did but it's Twitter though it's Twitter right it's a younger audience well that's that's what I was going to say is that was my fatal flaw is that looking at my team like Connor alluded to I'm really not upset about how my draft went by war, I had the best team. I had 10 more war than Connor's team. I had 20 more war than Paul's team. So overall, I think my team was pretty solid. But I think where I messed up in drafting is that I have a bunch of guys who mashed in the 90s and early 2000s, which is cool. But on a, a team that is getting voted on by social media, that is not really the way to go, to have a bunch of guys who were good in the 90s and early 2000s. And I also took longevity into account, I think, a little bit too much. And rightfully so, I think fans looked at these teams and said, okay, even if we're building for eight years, if you get one World Series ring within yeah. those eight years, fans would take that rather than, you know, eight years of maybe you're getting bounced in the, in the playoffs in round two. So I think it's a pretty solid team longevity-wise, and I think I have the best team by war, like I said, but I think those are my two fatal flaws there. Yeah, I think, and Connor, you can speak to this, but I think the idea that, uh, you know, Brendan, the unfortunate part about having the second overall pick, Brendan, is that you didn't often have the best player at his position. You probably usually had the second best player at each position, but... Um, I saw a lot of comments for Connor's draft about Connor's going to win a lot of games 10 to 9. And then I saw a lot of comments about my draft of like he stacked pitching, he dominated, you know, in terms of the pitching. And I was definitely pitching heavy. And I think, Connor, you would admit that you were obviously uh, lineup heavy. And then Brendan was just kind of in a middle ground where I think you had some good pitchers. You had some, it was a more balanced team. I didn't dominate anyone. But you didn't dominate any one category. And I think that's like it. Uh, weirdly enough, even though that's probably not how you should build a baseball team in general, I think that that, that strategy might have backfired a little bit, weirdly. Yeah, I would agree. Connor, do you have any more final thoughts before we kick you off this podcast for you to never return? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of add in that I think a lot of it was, was some recency bias as well. I yeah. mean, I had seven of the nine guys in my lineup uh, played on the Orioles from 2012 uh, you know, through 2016, the, the, the best, most recent years. Um, and you look in my, you know, rotation, I've got two of my starters are from that time. And one of my relievers 
as well. And you kind of flip to Brendan's roster, who by war, yes, um, had the best team. Uh, but you kind of look at that recency bias. I think he had four, only four guys who played in that era, and or five guys maybe. And you know, some of those guys like Jim Johnson kind of ended with with a bad taste uh, in Orioles fans' mouths when he left. You know, Brian Roberts was was hurt during that era and then left and played for the Yankees uh, for one year at the end of his career. And then, of course, you know, Chris Davis was good then, but I think that name on the team hurt Brendan a little bit um, as well, just because a lot of people are going to think current Chris Davis and not 2013 Chris Davis. Um, and, and, you know, maybe recency bias helped me even if I didn't have the best team, but I will take it and I will walk away a winner. Well, congratulations. Your prize uh, for the winner is uh, absolutely nothing. And, uh, <laughs> but look, this was fun. We, uh, I think we're going to try to do more things like this. So if you have any ideas, Connor, if you have any ideas of, of uh, kind of drafts that we want to do, Maybe we can get more clever than drafts, but we don't have too many ideas. So you Well, know. The, the drafts are fun. Drafts I, are I know fun. I had a lot of fun. I think I learned a lot about kind of like the later 90, early 2000s. Yeah, it was Orioles a learning teams. experience, certainly. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, um, you know, I did not grow up an Orioles fan. Brendan, I know you didn't grow up an Orioles fan. So, like, a lot of what we le- learn about the team is a later, um, is kind of reading back or watching old videos. And it we learned a lot about guys that we did not grow up watching. And I think that uh, it was it was a great learning experience in that in that aspect. Yeah, and if there are any fan ideas about drafts yes. that we could possibly do, we had a great idea. I think a week or two weeks ago, somebody yeah. commented that we could do uh, players that the Orioles drafted in yep. their production, and we could only draft players that the Orioles drafted. So that was a great idea. And if you have any more, please let us know in the yeah. comments. All right, Connor, you're banished, but thanks so much. Thank you guys for having me. Also, be sure to listen to the Locked On Orioles podcast. Real quick, Connor, where can we find that? Uh, the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Get it wherever you get your pods. Uh, we're three days a week right now, but as the season gets closer, uh, it'll be daily Orioles content uh, if you want that in your ears. It's good stuff. Thanks again, Connor. Thank you. All right. Well, it's just me and Brendan now at this point. Uh, back on the podcast. We got a lot to get to. Yes. Um, let's... Talk about some of the news of the past week. It was just kind of a busy week. First off, the fact that the that Major League Baseball sets the calendar for the offseason, and they are looking at the calendar thinking, how can we get more people to be invested in our sport in the offseason? NBA dominates the offseason. NFL, in a lot of ways, dominates the offseason with free agency and the draft. How can we get people to be more excited about the MLB offseason? Oh, man. How about we throw the two of the most important days of the offseason, not just on the same day, but on a Friday? I'm not going to say that it makes sense, because it surely doesn't. I'm not going to say that I understand it, because I absolutely do not. Yeah, it's the start of the international uh, signing period. New international signing period was Friday, and also the deadline day for teams to... Uh, decide on deals with their arbitration-eligible players before they end up going to arbitration. So two things that obviously are not going to be huge eyeball-getters. They're not going to lead SportsCenter. But, I don't know, maybe not make them on a Friday? Is yeah. that a little... And I'm not even going to go on my rant about how baseball contracts make no sense and how trying to explain what arbitration-eligible players and Super 2 players and yeah. all that means to somebody would be nearly impossible. I'm not even going to go into that. Good, good luck explaining that to somebody who doesn't know baseball, doesn't watch I, I baseball. I tried to explain it to myself in my own head to understand it, and it's really difficult. Yeah, it is. To understand all of these really weird contracts that Major League Baseball has and the arbitration and this and that. I mean, we have fans asking us, rightfully so, when the Orioles, say, for example, did not come to an agreement with Anthony Santander that we'll get to, we had fans saying, well, what does this mean for Anthony Santander? Is, is he no mean, longer a member of the is team? Is he a free agent? Yeah. Is he this? Is he that? And it is understandably very difficult to understand. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start with the news that the Orioles came to agreements with 17 international uh, amateurs. And these are 17 guys who are between typically between 16 and 17 years old. I think the oldest guy was maybe 20 I'm not sure. I'd have to look back at the list. But it's a lot of names that essentially you're going to hear now 
And then you're going to file away in your brain for a few years because a lot of these guys are not going to make it to the minor league system to the United States. They're going to be playing in the Dominican Summer League for the most part for the next couple years at least uh, because they're just not ready at this point. They're 16 years old. What were you doing at 16 years old? I was not getting signed by the Orioles. Looking for a prom date, I think is mostly, yeah. mostly yeah. what I was doing at 16 years old. Um, so let's talk about the two guys at the top of this class because this was a major uh, signing period for the Orioles, what Michael Elias called a gigantic step. And they signed fewer guys on Friday than they did on the first day of the international signing period back in 2019, back on July 2nd, J2. But the quality of the top two guys was definitely higher than any of the guys that they had signed back on J2 2019. Yeah, and let me just start by saying that it is incredibly important that the Orioles are now getting into this market. I I can't emphasize enough the fact that missing out on this is detrimental to the team. And it's really important that uh, Michael Elias and Kobe Perez are starting to make a bigger splash in this market. I mean, you look around Major League Baseball, and there are teams that are literally built around this international signing period. You can look at the Washington Nationals, who are led by guys like Juan Soto and Victor Robles. Look at the Atlanta Braves. Maybe that's not the best example, given their fines, but they've still got guys like Ronald Acuna. Ozzie Albies, they are built by those international signing period guys. And here's two that could be huge for the Orioles in Samuel Basayo and Michael Hernandez. Both of them, I think, could make it. They'll probably be in the Orioles top 30 prospects pretty soon. We're not sure exactly where they will be slotted yet. But you have to imagine that these two guys would be somewhere near the top. I don't know if they'll be top 10, but maybe over the next few years, they'll start to work their way up the board. Michael Hernandez especially was already the number 30 international prospect, according to MLB Pipeline, and the Orioles scooped him up. Yeah, so $1.3 million for Samuel Basayo. That is an all-time record for the Orioles in terms of uh, money being spent on a single international amateur. He is a catcher from the Dominican Republic, and then right behind him, Michael Hernandez, $1.2 million shortstop from Venezuela. I love how the Orioles went with position players for the vast majority because, and this is something that we should have seen coming because Michael Elias has talked about how a lot of the superstar players in Major League Baseball, first off, a lot of them have came over in the international signing period. A lot of them were international signings. And the fact that the Orioles had not been players in this market Pretty much prior to this, they had, you know, guys here and there. They had their Jonathan Scopes, but they did not have uh, a, a presence there in the international market and especially the Latin market. So to build a presence there was huge because you can not only get a superstar player, but also look at the kind of superstar players that you have. You mentioned Victor Robles, Juan Soto, Vlad Guerrero uh, with the tam- with the. Uh, Toronto Blue, Blue Jays, Jays. Yep. Uh, Buffalo Blue Jays, rather. Um, <laughs> and you look at some, a lot of these players, very few of them are pitchers for whatever reason. And part of it is, Michael Elias did say that pitchers develop later. As they get older, it's a, it's a skill that takes a little bit more time to develop. And a lot of times you just end up seeing these shortstops, these catchers uh, who are supremely athletic. They burst onto the scene at, at 15, 16 years old. Teams go and grab them, and then they turn out to be budding superstars at the major league level. So the Orioles went with 15 position players to two pitchers, and it also goes hand-in-hand with what they have in their system. The Orioles system, we've talked about a million times on this podcast, at this point is deeper in terms of pitching than it is at the position players. They do have some guys, some shortstop, middle infield prospects with Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson and Taron Vavra, but they don't have a ton of those guys. Probably they don't have enough of those guys. So to get those guys in the system now uh, is a big step for them. Well, no matter what, you're adding talent. Yeah. Right? Like, you can take away the positions, you can take away anything else. It certainly helps you to add talent to your prospect pool, as simple as that sounds. But to go back to your point about pitchers, I mean, you could be a 16-year-old pitcher throwing 75 miles an hour and then by the time you're 17 you could be throwing 85 yeah so that can drastically change and it can drastically change what kind of prospects teams think you might be but these two guys especially in Samuel Basayo and Michael Hernandez really exciting 
prospects. I mean, you look at Hernandez especially. He's probably the one that I'm most excited about. He's getting comparisons, at least with his body type, to Alex Rodriguez and Carlos Correa. Yeah, now way away, obviously. A long ways away, yes. But the thing that's exciting, at least to me, about Hernandez that I saw, pretty much all of his scouting reports say that he's smooth, which is awesome for a 16-year-old shortstop. I mean, the swing is smooth. The defensive mechanics are smooth. And if the mechanics are smooth... I mean, if he's got that just kind of raw potential, the mechanics are usually the first thing that you have to work on. So the fact that the mechanics are already smooth and they're already there, that's really encouraging for a young shortstop, especially who has the body type of an Alex Rodriguez, Carlos Correa. So I think Hernandez could be a really exciting shortstop prospect in a few years. And of those 17 guys, I think four maybe were catchers. Um, which I saw a lot of comments. Why do we need catchers? Adley Rutschman. Yeah, obviously, Adley Rutschman is is going to be the catcher of the future, most likely in Baltimore. But also, Adley Rutschman is 22 at this point. These guys are 16. Right. Adley yeah. Rutschman is going to be in the major leagues way before these guys. Right. Adley Rutschman could be on his second contract by the time these guys are in AAA. So, right. um, first off, you know, obviously there is not a, an overlap in terms of the age there. So, these guys are way younger, so consider them in a totally different class. It's not like the Orioles went out and drafted somebody out of college, number one overall, who was uh, you know right. a, another catcher, and that ended up being a problem. And they probably won't even hit the minor leagues for another two years, yeah, at least, most likely. And and another thing is they may not stick a catcher. I think a lot of times, you know, all the guys that were listed were pretty much shortstop catcher. They weren't listed as third base because they're so raw at this point. You stick them at shortstop until they can't play it until right. either they outgrow the position or they realize that, you know, they, they are not laterally quick enough to do it. So maybe a lot of these catchers could end up being a corner outfielder, could end up being a first baseman. They could Bryce Harper and turn into a right fielder, even despite playing catcher. So Kyle Schorber and yeah. turn into a left fielder. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. So yeah. these guys are, are way away <laughs> Um, from being in the big leagues. So, you know, they, they are probably not going to stick at their original position. So you're getting these raw, talented athletes at this point and just hoping that they turn into something. Right, and Basayo especially is one of those guys who will probably just size out of the catcher position. Yeah, he'll probably he's just big. end up being a little bit too big because he's big now he's, and he's 17. Yeah, 6'3", almost 200 pounds. Yeah, so he will probably end up being a first baseman or maybe a bigger third baseman like Vlad Guerrero Jr., I would imagine Basayo probably goes to first base at some point in the yeah. minor leagues. And then in terms of one more thing I'll say about the money that they spent there, um, another reason that we did not see so many guys signed by the team is because you only have a certain amount of money that you can spend in this Braves. signing period. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at you. Uh, yeah. You can only spend, I think it's it's around $6 million total uh, for the Orioles, and it depends on the team, how much you're able to sign. So when you go out and sign two guys for $1.3 and $1.2 million, that just means you don't have money to spend on the other guy. So you just cannot sign as many guys. But it was important that they were going out and signing the top guys this year. And and you talked about the depth. These guys, It's just good to add these guys talent-wise. And that was clearly the intention in 2019. It was just to get guys in the system at the very least. And it's clearly the intention when Mike Elias gets a player from the Dominican Summer League thrown in in one of his trades. It's because he just wants to increase the talent level there. And these guys are so young, so raw. Um, you know, you, you want to get a top guy. But that being said, y- y- there's a good chance that one of the non-top guys, one of the... $300,000 signings might turn into a player who could make his major league debut at some point. Right, and they're not ready to be the Yankees in the international signing period no, and sign it a takes years. Jason Dominguez for $5.5 million and sign like two other players. Yeah, they're, they're scouting these kids when they're like 12. Right, <laughs> and the Orioles are pretty new at this. Yeah. They, are, they are pretty new into the international market, so you need more depth. Yeah. You can't go out and build a base of these guys and say, okay, we have one guy who we signed for $5 million and he's going to just go out and like throw fly balls to himself apparently or something like that. You need depth in this market and that's what the Orioles are doing. I think a few years down the line, maybe they'll start to sign some guys for $2 million, somewhere around there. Maybe they'll get some of the higher end guys, but for right now, you need more depth. Yeah. All right. What should we talk about next, Brendan? We got the, uh, some there's more. a lot to get to. There is a lot to get to. Let's talk about Brandon Klein real quick. Yeah. Um, because I just wanted to touch on 
What a great story he was. Um, he announced his retirement at the end of last week, 29 years old. Frankly, I was a little bit surprised that uh, he is calling it a career just because in three games last year, small sample size, he only gave up the one earned run. But the year before, when he made his major league debut in 2019, he certainly struggled with the Orioles. Uh, 5-8 ERA, I believe, um, with the O's. 5-4-8. 5-4-8. So, you know, he struggled out of the bullpen. But Brandon Klein, what a fun story he was and a great story. He was a second-round pick, went to UVA, was grew up in Frederick, was an Orioles fan, you know, from the beginning. He had his mom at his first game. And then he gets drafted, I believe, in the same draft that Kevin Gaussman got drafted in. Yeah, he was a second-rounder yeah. in 2012. So he was right after him, had obviously very high expectations, and then injuries just totally derailed him. And uh, I believe he had Tommy John at some point. Yes, he did. And just could not get his fastball up to the same uh, velocity that it was. He was expected to be a starter, had to move to the bullpen, then kind of had the second career in the bullpen in Bowie and Norfolk, and is able to make his major league debut. And the fact that he did not turn into a productive major leaguer, that's not as important as the fact that he was able to get there, make his major league debut with his hometown Orioles, and and just be a great story. Yeah, you have to imagine it was almost a love-hate relationship with baseball. I mean, this guy, his first injury was a broken right fibula. And then he had three separate elbow surgeries, including a complete Tommy John reconstruction. That is a lot. <laughs> that is a, probably even one of those injuries knocks a guy off of his path when he's in the minor leagues. So the fact that Brandon Klein went through all of those injuries and was still able to make his debut with the team that he grew up rooting for. You can't not root for Brandon Klein and be proud of the fact that he made 37 appearances for the O's in 2019 and 2020. The fact that he made one of those appearances is awesome. Absolutely. So 29 years old, the Orioles had um, placed him on waivers. He cleared waivers back in December. Um, and then he elected free agency and then just decided to call it a career. So um, we wish him the best, certainly, in retirement, and I know that he will always be welcome uh, back in Birdland. All right, what else should we get to? Thomas Eshelman? Yep. Let's talk about Thomas Eshelman because we have another member of the Orioles bullpen, sometimes member of the starting rotation, who is returning. Thomas Eshelman went the same kind of path as Brandon Klein, elected free agency after he was placed on waivers. And I was honestly a little bit surprised that he was placed on waivers the first time. Um, and I was surprised because he had a sub-4 ERA in bouncing back and forth between the rotation and the bullpen in 2020. I thought he showed some flashes. He's not a guy who has great stuff, so I don't know where his role will be long-term. But he returns to the Orioles on a minor league deal. Why not get him back in the fold? Well, I think Thomas Eshelman probably best projects as an innings eater for the Orioles. I don't yeah. see him... Uh, joining the fold in the starting rotation more than likely because I think if you're the O's heading into 2021, you would probably like uh, another veteran starter at the back end of the rotation. I don't think that that's Eshelman. And as you go later in the season, I would imagine that you probably don't want Eshelman taking away starts from some of the prospects that might get called up this year. So I don't think Eshelman is going to be a rotation guy. But I think realistically, he will probably be a long reliever. If somebody gets knocked out in the second or third inning, a starter, you bring Thomas Eshelman in just to eat some innings in the middle of a game. If there's an injury to a starter, I could see Eshelman bumping into the starting rotation temporarily. He's, like you said, he doesn't have amazing stuff. I don't see him as a high-impact starter for the O's. But if you need him to start, he can. And if you don't, then he can be an innings eater out of the bullpen. Yeah, I think he fits into the category as same category as um, some of the fringe starters that... Asher Wojciechowski. Asher Wojciechowski, though, I think he's less likely to, um, you know, be a starter again with the Orioles in the future just because of the struggles that he had in 2020. Um, but I think that Cole Stewart is going to fit in that category if they decide to bring him back. Guys, Maybe Bruce Zimmerman. Bruce Zimmerman. Guys on these minor league deals that um, are just trying to impress um, and sometimes you end up getting a John Means out of that situation, somebody who just shows up in camp and dominates, and out of nowhere, he ends up being a, a solid starter for you, but um, they're ju he's just one of the guys that is going to be competing, I think, for a roster spot uh, come spring training. All right. 
Next up, we're flying through these. We are flying through It's funny. Quick hits. It it feels like every podcast we're trying to, you know, figure out what piece of Orioles news we're going to talk about. And then we just got news On this podcast, it's just news, 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 news. So we're rolling through it. I feel like we're on hot stove on like MLB Network or something, you know? All right. Same thing. Let's talk about arbitration. Yeah, I mean, same quality. Right. Production quality. I'd have to agree. Right there. Yeah. Let's talk about arbitration real quick. Yes. Um, Two guys that coming into Friday, the Orioles had to agree to terms with them or else they would head to arbitration. Trey Mancini, Anthony Santander. Trey Mancini, the deal got done. Same exact terms as 2024.75 million. Unfortunately, was not able to get a pay bump because he didn't play a game in 2020. Um, But good that they did not. This was not a a protracted negotiations. It did not have to to head to arbitration with Trey Mancini. And then Anthony Santander... Uh, not reaching an agreement with the Orioles. They say they have a file-and-go policy. So essentially, they sent in the number that they wanted to sign him for. I believe it was reported by Mark Feinsand as a little bit more than $2 million. Um, Santander was looking for maybe a little bit closer to $3 million. Arbiter's going to look at these two numbers and decide which one he wants to go with. Well, starting with Trey Mancini, I was a little surprised that they didn't bump up his salary just a little bit because it's the next year of uh, potential arbitration. However, I'm glad that they didn't knock it down by saying, yeah. you know, maybe your production in 2021 won't be the same as what it could have been in 2020, whatever. So I, I think it's probably fair that the number stayed the same with Trey Mancini. For Anthony Santander, I want to clarify again, this does not mean that Anthony Santander is a free agent. He is still on the Orioles. And hopefully uh, when this arbitration hearing Uh, happens they will come to an agreement they will figure out some salary for next season and Anthony Santander will be back with the club but Anthony Santander not a free agent he's not open to negotiate with other teams he is still only negotiating with the Orioles I wanted to clarify because I was confused about it the whole arbitration (laughs) deadline mess is just complicated so Anthony Santander still with the Orioles just needs to negotiate a salary for next year I think he still has an extra three years in arbitration under team control. He's still arbitration eligible for another few years. So yeah. this is probably their first of a few arbitration you know, negotiations. Absolutely. And for whatever he's going to get, even if it is the number he wants, which is closer to $3 million, we have seen that's going to be a bargain for Anthony Santander. Yes. there. Uh, just a, another bargain on this team where because of his age, because of his experience level, They are getting more than they are paying for Anthony Santander. All right, that wraps up the arbitration standpoint. I think I'm out of breath at this point. Uh, What what should we talk about next, Brendan? Well, before we move on from arbitration, I just want to add that it kind of more arbitration notes says something about the state of Major League Baseball and kind of how teams uh, have to be more careful with money after last season. I think, but. Anthony Santander will come to some kind of agreement, but the Orioles, like many teams across the league, just being careful with how their money is being spent. The all-arbitration podcast. Yes. uh, (laughs) Let's talk uh, more arbitration numbers. Uh, All right. Let's talk about uh, the shortstop market, Brendan. Let's do it. We teased it in the the caption, so I figure we have to get to it at some point. The good people have tuned in for this, for this discussion. And this is a discussion that has been had around the Orioles' Twitter around massinsports.com. What should the Orioles do at shortstop? Should they go out and sign a free agent? This has been an especially slow free agent market around baseball. The biggest names, almost all of them, are still on the board at every position. Somebody tweeted out, I can't remember who, they said biggest free agent still available at every position, and I was like, okay, cool. So the same exact list could have been tweeted in November. Right. Uh, Trevor Bauer is still out there. JT Realmuto is still out there. Didi Gregorius is still out there. I mean, the big names that have been signed are really DJ LeMayhew, yep. Liam Hendricks, and James McCann? Yeah, at this point. Can you think of somebody else who, oh, besides Marcus Stroman returning to the Mets and... Unless we're really missing somebody. Yeah, I mean, we probably are. But I mean, the Padres made a few big trades, but that yeah. wasn't free agent signings. No. Uh, they did sign somebody, some people. But anyway, this has been a slow market. Yes. And so all of the names... <laughs> the fact that we're not sure, yeah. it's slow. Almost all of the names that were on the market back in November are still on the market. So I don't think the Orioles are going to go out and get Didi Gregorius. Um, I don't think... Ooh. I'm sorry. I don't think they're going to go out 
and get Andrelton Simmons. At I the will cry myself to sleep. But the need is still there for a shortstop. And one intriguing name that is out there is Jonathan VR, former Orioles infielder himself. Of course, came over in the Jonathan Scope trade. Jonathan Scope is still out there as well. Bring him home. Uh, it just doesn't doesn't make much sense. I don't well, think. the reason I'll, I'll say one thing about someone's Jonathan a party Scope, pooper over there. He's more of a second baseman. I think that they are, if they Boo. bring back Hanser Alberto, they'll stick him at second most likely. They Boo. could okay, He's party born. pooper. All right. Uh, <laughs> in terms of Jonathan VR though, yes. I think he makes sense for some reasons. The con- former connection is there. The fact that he's a former Oriole under Michael Elias. The fact that he can play shortstop, and I think that they will need somebody there um, if Richie Martin is not ready to be an everyday major leaguer again in 2021. But the concerns that we voiced about Jonathan VR when he was with the Orioles and when he was traded by the Orioles are still there. The defense is still not great. Um, He takes a lot of risks on the base paths, even though he's very fast and was a 40 stolen base guy couple years ago with the O's takes a lot of risks there um, and is just not the most consistent guy. He's a free swinger. He is a very free swinger. Yeah. Doesn't take a whole lot of walks. No, Um, not his forte. No, but is the production, the potential production to you, Brendan, worth bringing him in? Yes. And I'll give you a big reason why. Okay. And that reason is that he was bad in 2020. And I think that really drove down his market value. Yeah. I think what you can get Jonathan VR for right now after his 2020 season is probably going to be a pretty good deal. His best career numbers are with the Orioles, but last year he hit 232 with two home runs, 15 RBIs. He had more stolen bases than RBIs. He had 16 stolen bases, 15 RBIs, and a 593 OPS. I looked that up, by the way, how many guys have had more stolen bases than RBIs. It was a very short list. I can imagine so. It was like Roman Quinn with the Phillies, at Alberto Mondesi with the Royals, and, and Jonathan VR. <laughs> yeah. It's like it. Makes sense. Yeah. Hit just 188 for the Blue Jays after he was traded to Toronto at the deadline as a piece that they were hoping would help lead them to the playoffs. So I think VR, you can probably get him for a little bit of a steal on the free agent market right now. But like I said, his best numbers were with the Orioles. He has a 270 career average, uh, which is the highest of his career. A 438 slugging percentage, uh, highest of his career. 777 OPS, highest of his career. So you would be bringing him back to Camden Yards where he has his best numbers. He was a big piece in 2019. He played in all 162 games, split pretty evenly between second base and shortstop. I think he would probably play shortstop but hey if Richie Martin plays pretty well you could also bump him over to second base if needed we'll see where Ryland Bannon potentially gets called up to play yeah we'll see if Alberto comes back there could be a lot of moving pieces but I also see him in a similar light to Yomer Sanchez they're different players because Sanchez uh, gives you a lot of value defensively where VR probably gives you more value offensively but they're similar in that you can probably bump them pretty much anywhere in the infield and they will be able to start for you somewhere. Yeah. I think Sanchez will probably start at either third base or second base, where VR would potentially start at sh- second base or shortstop. But it's good value because he was bad in 2020. Yeah. And I think that's really the reason that you would be looking at VR. If he was good last year, he probably goes to a better team for a higher salary. And that's exactly what Michael Elias is trying to do in free agency is find guys who maybe are coming off down years. Maybe the market just has left them for whatever reason. He's trying to bring them in, in most cases, turn them into trade pieces. And let's be honest, if they were to bring back Jonathan VR, they would be just getting him ready to trade him at this point, which is what they're going to be doing with most free agents. It's what they did with Tommy Malone. It's what they did with Wade LeBlanc. They weren't able to trade him because of injuries, but it's it's what they did with Jose Iglesias. So they are just, he's 29 years old, VR is. If they brought him in, it would probably be on a one-year deal, hoping that they can trade him by the trade deadline. So that's most likely what the interest would be from Michael Elias' perspective. But then you have to look at, with every single free agent that comes into this Orioles team, would they be blocking somebody younger? And in this case, this is one of the rare spots in the, in the roster 
where I don't think that's the case yet. Outfield, you're not going to bring in, I mean, maybe they bring in Puig as they've been connected to him, but I think odds are they're not going to bring in an outfielder in free agency because they don't want to block Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, Anthony Santander, Yusniel Diaz. In the starting rotation, they could bring in somebody, but they're not going to bring in somebody for two or three years because they don't want to impede the progress of Alexander Wells, of Zach Lather, of Michael Bauman, of Bruce Zimmerman even, of... of you know, Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken. This is one of those spots in the infield where you don't have an immediate replacement. You don't have a young guy who is ready to make his major league debut and make make contributions yet. So this is one of the spots I think you could sign somebody for one year. He could, if if he's not tradable by the trade deadline, in theory, he could stick with you for the entire entire 2021 season. And he is not going to be impeding the progress. That being said, if Richie Martin has an outstanding camp. If Richie Martin looks great and ready to go and all of a sudden, you know, post-wrist, broken wrist, he is a totally different player and he's ready to be an everyday major leaguer, that changes the equation. But at this point, the signs are not pointing to that. So I think if they were to bring in Jonathan VR or somebody of that ilk on a one-year deal, he's not blocking anybody. Yeah, we have a comment on YouTube that says, what about Gunner? The prospects that the Orioles have at shortstop just aren't going to be ready for a few years. Gunnar Henderson is probably two or three years away from the major league level. Jordan Westberg is probably two or three years away. So they're good prospects, but they just still need time to develop uh, in the minors. We have another comment on YouTube. Thanks for following along. That says VR is a monster, maybe the best option available. So Paul, I will ask you, is VR the best option at shortstop available Within, makes, within the price range, yeah, right. not a D.D. Gregorius or Angelson Simmons. Is there anybody in that price range that you think might be even a better option than Jonathan VR? Uh, we have heard Rockabaco mention the name of Freddie Galvis, yeah. 31 years old, right in that same age range as where they, where they got Jose Iglesias. And he fits the Jose Iglesias mold more than Jonathan VR does. I think VR is less of a defensive, more offensive uh, power guy than Iglesias. Freddie Galvis is more in the in the realm of Iglesias in that he is a glove-first player. So you would be signing him hoping that he can produce a little bit at the plate, but mostly just show that he is still a very good defensive shortstop. You start him every day, you trade him by the trade deadline. Yeah, so yeah, I, not I, an amazing piece, Freddie Galvis, but he's probably going to hit around 250, 240 and give very you some little solid power. production at shortstop. Yeah. It's not going to be a big, flashy signing, but maybe Freddie Galvis uh, is somebody that you can sign and deal. He was dealt at the 2019 trade deadline when the Blue Jays signed him before the season and then traded him to Cincinnati. So maybe the Orioles could do a similar thing in 2021. But I would agree with you. I think Freddie Galvis is probably the other name that jumps out. Personally, I'd almost rather have VR because I think VR gives you a little bit more production offensively, especially on the base paths. And VR is a little bit of a worse defender, but I think you can probably keep VR between shortstop and second base, knowing that you have some other solid defenders in the infield, especially with Yolmer Sanchez. Don't play him in center field like the Marlins did last year. Yeah, do not play him in center field. I I don't think that's a concern for the Orioles. Don't know why they did that, but the Marlins did it. Well, sometimes the Marlins just needed players last year. (laughs) Yeah, true. So I would not put Jonathan VR in center field, but I think you could make a case that Jonathan VR makes the most sense out of guys remaining. Him and Freddie Galvis are the two that I would say make the most sense. And we saw what the league still thinks of him by the fact that he was traded not just once by the Orioles before the 2020 season, but at midseason, as you mentioned, the August 31st trade deadline ended up going to a team that was a contender um, and was dealt for a pretty solid prospect, I believe, in that deal. So you know that the league still has some thinking of him at this point. Even coming off that down year, um, we just saw him traded for two prospects in back-to-back trades. So the precedent is there for a Jonathan VR trade where you could net somebody. I think VR would probably like to come back. I think he liked his experience here, and I think teammates liked him. Put up his best numbers here. Put up his best numbers here. Absolutely. And he's coming to a hitter's park uh, that suited him very well. And he is probably going to get the same freedom on the base paths that he had in Baltimore the first time. He's probably, if he signs with a contender, they might say, hey, maybe don't try running on that uh, 0-2 count every time, you know? Just uh, just, cool back. just a little bit. Um, so 
I think that there is is a chance that he comes back. That being said, it's just the fact that they have had contact with him and the fact that they have a history with him does not mean it's a certainty by any stretch. And I think there are so many. It is it is January 19th. Teams are reporting for spring training, supposed to be in less than a month, and you still have so many top free agents on out there in the market. I think the Orioles will be patient in this market and wait for the market to develop. Wait for the top guys like a Simmons and like a Didi Gregorius to sign before they decide, okay, how much is a John, would a Jonathan VR cost? How much would a Freddie Galvis cost? Let's sort through the numbers and let's sign somebody, bring him into Sarasota. Yeah, maybe Michael Elias just says, I'll wait to make sure that no other team feels like signing you, and then he'll say, yeah. I have $2.00. Come to play for the Orioles. and I think, there's uh, a, I think there's a minimum there, Brendan. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a pretty good strategy, though. I would play for $2, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, it'd probably be overpay yeah. for your value there, Paul. <laughs> that's, that's Wow. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, are we getting any more comments? I'm not able to, to read too many of the comments as well on YouTube, so... Thank you for commenting along. I can't read them. Brendan can. Yes, we are. We, we're getting a lot of comments. Uh, one comment says that Jonathan VR carried the O's for a little bit. I don't know if I would necessarily say carried, but he was an important part of the team. Carried it, a team 162 that was games, lost 100 and, 162 games played. Yeah, I, that's really I, solid. He was a fixture in the lineup. Uh, we have another uh, comment saying, "Hope Diaz turns it around." I like him. We've mentioned on previous. Me? Yep, we've mentioned on previous past podcasts on that were <laughs> pasta cast wow wow English we're right in the kitchen sometimes. we, we could, are uh, you know pasta, oh, that's our next podcast a pasta it's just cast. us cooking pasta <laughs> be sure to tune in um we mentioned on a previous pasta cast that um use neil diaz could debut this year we've noted his struggles in the minors but we are hoping that use neil diaz turns it around in 2021 and i think it's a real possibility that we could see him in the Orioles lineup at the second yeah. half of this year. And and I think it's less, uh, you know, this is a semantics argument, but I think it's less turning around. It, he was great from what we heard. Michael Elias was praising in him and the work that he did at the alternate site at Bowie. And he said, really, the only reason he didn't debut was they wanted to get looks at extended looks at other guys. The fact that Cedric Mullins was playing so well, you couldn't bump him out of Bowie. The fact that Austin Hayes came back from the injury on fire and he was great and they wanted to see him in a corner outfield. The fact that DJ Stewart went through that hot stretch. So I think really the only reason Yuzniel Diaz didn't make his major league debut was they wanted to see other guys. So maybe not turn things around, but fi- you know, kind of finish his development. And I think it was a good sign that the Orioles had a mini camp and he was invited to that outfielder's mini camp as well. They want to see what they they have in him. They want to see if he can come into Sarasota in less than a month and make a push to make the opening day roster. Again, we think he's probably going to be added to the Major League roster, make his debut maybe a month or two into the season, but he is close. He is close to the bigs. Yeah, and one more question we've got on YouTube. Uh, it says, who will have a breakout season this you will, year? Brendan. I think it'll be me. Um I'm going to go with Austin Hayes. We haven't seen a full healthy season from Austin Hayes yet, so I'm going to cross my fingers and hope that he stays healthy for 2021. And I think if he does, we will see, hopefully, a full productive season out of Austin Hayes because he's showed really good flashes. And I think if he's able to stay healthy for a season, even though his production might not be a ton better than it was in 2019 or 2020, if we see it over a full healthy season, that could be like a breakout for Austin Hayes. So that's my answer. I think a low-key storyline coming into the year is going to be where he plays, too. Yep. Is he going to be trusted in center field the entire time he's made some spectacular plays there little battle with Cedric Mullins there yeah and and Elias has said Yuzniel Diaz is capable of playing all three outfield spots which I thought was a little surprising because I thought they would want to try him more in a corner outfield spot maybe DH him a little bit so well capable of playing all three outfield spots is different from do you want him yes, playing center field when you have Cedric Mullins or Austin Hayes that's there the, that's the question is he going to be t- is Yuzniel Diaz going to be taking you know, games away, innings away from guy from Austin Hayes in center. Yeah. I don't know if the team wants to do that at this point. Right. But they do want to see what they have in him in center field as well. Right. Um, and then we have not even talked about Ryan McKenna, who played center field his entire right. 2019 season pretty much with Bowie. Are they going to put him in center field, move Austin Hayes to a corner, and have Cedric Mullins sitting on the bench one day if everybody's healthy? Are they going to be willing to do that just to see what they have in McKenna? Right. So, Paul, who is your breakout player for next season, breakout candidate? Um, can't say 
Ryan Mountcastle because he's already broken out. I think that's, even though he could still win rookie of the year, technically, because he did not play enough games, he's still eligible to, to win rookie of the year in the 2021 season. My breakout pra- player, Adley Rutschman. All right. Thanks, everybody. All right, thanks, everybody. Uh, <laughs> we're get, we have to end every podcast with that now, too. Yeah. Adley Rutschman, thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming. All right. You got to name drop him at least once. I think um, my breakout player is a guy that has not made his major league debut yet. I'm going to go with Zach Lowther. I think this guy's going to be a stud. Um, you know, I'm probably more bullish on Zach Lowther than some others, but I think uh, Lowther has the potential to be um, a fixture in the rotation. We saw what Dean Kramer did in just four starts last year. Um, I think Lowther, you look at his production at Bowie in the 2019 season, um, you look at the stuff, he has multiple good pitches, like plus pitches. Um, I think he's going to make his major league debut probably before the middle of the year. Uh, uh, he's going to be right there with Alexander Wells and Michael Bauman in terms of guys that are going to be starting. Um, new dad. I think Zach Lather is going to be have some new dad, dad strength. Dad power. Dad strength. And uh, I think that he's, uh, I'm looking for him. But of course, he's going to be a rookie. So no pressure on the guy. No but, pressure. He is just Paul's breakout candidate for 2021. Okay, that's right. That's right. I, I'm just saying, let's keep an eye on him. Um, in terms of guys already on the roster, I mean, it's tough because Santander, is, you can't put him in that category. Full season Ryan Mountcastle? Full season, yeah. I, don't know I if mean, that he's counts. already broken out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I think Austin Hayes fits in that category. And, and again, like Dean Kramer, I think, is a breakout candidate, but I thought that he made such a good impression his first right. three starts. So um, I can't really call him a breakout candidate because he was outstanding. Right. Uh, I am also, I just have to acknowledge that I am being attacked in our YouTube comments. What else is uh, Somebody is all caps. Hi, Jake. Uh, he says, you're looking at my comments. I see you looking at them. Guy <laughs> in the blue shirt. And then he we're says. We're both wearing blue shirts. And then he says, okay, guy in the blue shirt. We're at war. Wow. Uh, because I did not read out uh, his question. You're on your Sorry, own Sorry, Jake. Here. You are on your own here. <laughs> all right. Anything else we want to talk about? that just about does it. I think that just about does it. Um, Adley Rutschman, 2021. All right. Thanks, everybody. Every one of our podcasts will include a draft from now on. We're going to be drafting (laughs) whatever you want. Uh, You know, next week on the pasta cast, on the the pasta cast next week, we'll be drafting pasta. First overall pick. Got to be penne. Got to be penne pasta. I think easily has to be the tricolor rotini. Probably goes second. That's close. That's close. Um, You know, going to be a toss. Metza penne, you know, like the little penne's. This is the content the Orioles fans sign up for. This is. Us talking about pasta. The pasta cast. We're too close to our kitchen. That's why we've just got pasta on the mind. <laughs> Next podcast, we're going to have somebody back there making food for us. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, all really right. Good content. Thanks so much for tuning in. This podcast got off the rails real quick. Uh, but, of course, be sure to subscribe, rate, review, all that stuff. Let us know if you sh- we should do a pasta cast. He's Brendan Mortensen, at Brendan Morty on Twitter. I am at Paul Mancano on Twitter. And, of course... Be sure to follow Mass and Orioles. If you don't follow Mass and Orioles, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? How'd you even find us? <laughs> That's a great question, <laughs> actually. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks, of course, to Hannah Broder behind the scenes, as always. And thanks to Connor Newcomb for joining us on today's episode. And uh, thanks to you. We will uh, we'll see you later. <laughs>